I invite you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2, we will look at second half of verse 10 through verse 16. Would you pray with me as we come to read and hear from the word of the Lord? Almighty God, we pause and bow in your majestic presence, asking that you would enable us to hear your voice, to see your glory in the pages of your word. For as we come to the end of this Lord's day, the glorious day in which you raised your son from the dead for our justification, he who will never die again and we with him. As we come to the end of this day, we are tired and we ask that you would give us attention to what you have said, that we may be fully equipped for every good work which you have prepared for us in the Lord Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. And now would you stand as we hear the word of our living God. 2 Peter chapter 2, let's start at verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls, They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. I've entitled this sermon, A Profile of Unbelief. 
I've entitled it this for a couple reasons. Peter in this passage describes the false teachers at some length in this passage and in the one right after it. He does this to warn us to stay away from the false teachers. I describe them at length to you to show them how terrible they are so that you will be persuaded not to follow after them, not to believe their lies. So this is particularly about the false teachers. That is the profile of unbelief. But I wanted to keep the title more generic to emphasize this is a profile of unbelief in general. False teachers are not just a problem out there. This is not just about the televangelists that many of us would not touch with a 10-foot pole, and rightly so. The problem is not just out there. We all have to be on guard against the things we read about in our own hearts. This affects all of us. As John Owen said, every sin carries within itself the seeds of total apostasy. So we we read about arrogance, ignorance, types of unbelief in this paragraph, and all of us are tempted to them at one point or another. So this is about us just as much as it is about the false teachers. We should keep in mind that when Scripture speaks this seriously, we must take it seriously. Peter speaks this way as a pastoral warning to his flock with gravity because this is a matter of life and death. But why does Peter go at length to describe the false teachers in this way? He does that for at least two reasons. Because the false teachers are crafty. As we saw in verse 1, they, they secretly bring in destructive heresies. They are manipulative. They are crafty, so we must be on our watch. Julie Lowe is a counselor at the Christian Counseling Educational Foundation outside Philadelphia. and She's done a lot of counseling to children and adolescents, and she's done a lot of research on sexual predators and how they work. She emphasizes that sexual predators are not the long-bearded, white-haired, stranger-danger kind of people who have the vans advertising free candy and all the obvious warning signs. Sexual predators are very, very crafty. The majority of them are the people who are closest to you, family and friends. There have even been sexual predators who have been so deceptive to parents and their children that the parents of abused children have gone to the hearings of these sexual predators in court and have said that they are on their side. That is how deceptive predators are. So we, are, we would do well to be on our guard here against the false teachers. Second reason Peter speaks this way is that he wants us to desire to stay away from them. He's saying, see how wicked they are. Let me describe them to you in some detail so that you will want to stay away. See what you are choosing to identify with if you follow them. So his aim is to show us the sinfulness of the false teachers so that we will want to run from them. He's doing as the Puritans describes sin, he's describing the sinfulness of sin. He wants us to see the foolishness of the false teachers, that we may love wisdom, to see wickedness, that we may love righteousness. Now, Peter is not describing people who just need some advice, need some wise counsel, need some one-on-one time, need someone to sit down with them and explain to them some things. No, these are false teachers. 
They secretly bring in destructive heresies. They are wolves. These are not people who are suffering, who need to be dealt with gently. These are not people who, whom we should feel sorry for. They need to be rebuked. They need to be rebuked in the way that Peter speaks of them. They need to be told that they are under the wrath of God. And so God's people need to see this kind of description of the false teachers so that they can be told to be on your guard. They are more crafty than you think. Be careful. Some of us are very skilled in listening and being a friend to the friendless and helping those who are weak. Some of us are very skilled in those ways. But when we come to a passage like this one, we need to appreciate that there are people who need to be told these things. Not everyone is suffering. Not everyone needs compassion, like these false teachers. They need to be dealt with severely because of the error of their ways, which is severe. Of course, Peter's warning here does not apply to everyone. We shouldn't say these things to everyone who sins. But we also shouldn't think that these things should be said to no one. We shouldn't think that Peter has gone just a little too far here. And by God's grace, wisdom will be able to discern the difference. Peter's warning here is similar to Solomon's warning in Proverbs 7. Please turn with me there, Proverbs 7. Solomon pleads with his son to hear his words, to keep them, to treasure up his commandments, to love wisdom, not to go after the adulteress. Read with me from verse 10. Behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market. And at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon he will come home. With much seductive speech she persuades him. With her smooth talk she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. That is the same thing Peter is doing here. Warning his, his readers, warning the church, be careful of these false teachers. They would sift you like wheat. They can and they will. Solomon emphasizes he does not know that this will cost him his life. So because of this, listen to me. Listen to my words of wisdom. If you follow her, you will die. If you treasure up wisdom in your heart, you will live. So here in a similar way, Peter is merely being a faithful shepherd under the great shepherd of the sheep. 
He's a good under-shepherd. He wants to drive away the wolves. He wants to protect the sheep whom Christ has given him. Avoid them. And while avoiding them, also watch out for these tendencies in your own heart. So this is the profile of the false teachers. There are at least five characteristics of them. First of all, the false teachers are arrogant. They're bold and willful. That is to say, they are arrogant and obstinate. They are shameless and reckless, stubborn as a mule. They They will not listen to wise counsel. They think that they actually know better than they do. In Calvin's words, these are frantic men, lovers of tumults and of confusion. Well, how in particular do they manifest their arrogance? Peter goes on to say they blaspheme the glorious ones. Glorious ones is literally one word, glories. Well, what what are the glorious ones then? Some difference of opinion here. Some say that it's angels. I think more properly, it's a reference to demons. Turn with me to, to Jude 9 as a commentary on this. Makes this a little clearer. Jude 9, in reference to Michael the Archangel. Jude says, But when the Archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So we don't need to get into the details of the body of Moses and and other things like that, but the, the point is that Michael the archangel, great in might and power, as Peter says, that, that is true of the angels, they are great in might and power, but they are not arrogant enough to contend with demonic forces. Michael didn't say, I'm going to take the devil on myself. He said, I'm not stepping into this, the Lord rebuke you. Michael was not that arrogant. Michael was not as arrogant as the false teachers. He didn't think that he could handle it. He was greater in might and power than the false teachers, and he didn't want to touch it. The Lord rebuke you. So the point is the false teachers have proudly set themselves up against things that are way out of their league. They run full speed into a minefield. They are not awestruck by these evil spiritual forces. Instead, they blaspheme them. The angels know not to be disrespectful of these glorious ones. They know to be humble. They know to ask for the Lord's help in contending with evil spiritual forces. They know this even though they are greater in might and power. But they know that this is greater than their might and power. The angels know that they cannot handle spiritual warfare apart from God. They simply say, the Lord rebuke you. So the sad irony here that Peter is pointing out is that not even the holy angels are willing to speculate about things they don't know about. The angels know that arrogant judgments are blasphemous. It's disrespectful to speak about these glorious ones in such arrogant ways. We don't want to deal with that. So there truly is biblical basis for fools rush in where angels fear to tread. The false teachers do not tremble, as Peter says. They arrogantly make the judgments about things that they should tremble at and keep their mouths closed about. Natural men pretend to know about supernatural things. It's not an exact correlation, but in a related way, think of how Martin Luther was 
terrified the first time he administered the Lord's Supper. He was scared to death because he knew he was handling something supernatural, something holy. He knew that something very weighty was taking place. He didn't take it lightly. That illustrates something of how the false teachers just spout off half-baked opinions as if they know what they're talking about. They have not humbled themselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt them. Instead, they blaspheme the glorious ones, but the angels know better. So they are arrogant. Second of all, the false teachers are ignorant. Verses 12 and 13. They don't know that only God knows all things. These false teachers think they know a lot more than they do. And this is not innocent ignorance that they have. It is culpable ignorance. It's not okay that they make ignorant statements. They're actually blaspheming. They're held responsible for what they say. They're headed for destruction for their blasphemy. He goes on to say that they are irrational. That, that is to say that they have a level of truth suppression that goes way beyond what we normally see in the culture. These false teachers have turned the knob of truth suppression all the way up. And for that reason, they are more like animals than human beings. It's as if they're not even human anymore. That is the depth of their denial of the truth. Psalm 115 talks about idolaters. It could also be applied to the false teachers. The psalmist there says of the idolaters, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Similar thing going on with the false teachers here. There's a, there's a sort of pattern of decreation. Man is the, is the crowning achievement of God's creation. But in his suppression of the truth by his unrighteousness, it's as if he becomes more like an animal. He goes backwards in creation. He goes down. Instead of the nobility of knowing God and being known by him, you're more like an irrational animal than a rational human being. They are ignorant. They're literally without knowledge. And that way, you're, you're no better than an animal. In a, in a sense, you even seek to be non-human. You seek to erase the image of God from your existence, as if that were possible. A few years ago, Carl Truman came out with a book entitled Fools Rush In, Where Monkeys Fear to Tread. Rightly, rightly picking up on that same thing. Not even animals are as ignorant as you are. They're born to be caught and destroyed. Again, picking up on that animal theme. They're merely driven by their instinct. They just walk around unthoughtfully throughout life, and then they're destroyed. The cow probably has little awareness of the difference between roaming in the, in the range and going on the way to the slaughterhouse. It's just going where it's told to go. Just walking around, no big deal. I'm over here now, and okay, I'll go over here, and oh, I'm about to die right there. No big deal. I'm just, just doing what I do. The cow doesn't know what's going on. It's an irrational animal. That's the point. So are these false teachers. They blaspheme. They, they disrespect things they don't understand. They handle holy things, but they mishandle them. 
They're not afraid to make pronouncements on things that even the angels don't want to handle. The angels are smart enough to say, not touching that, the Lord rebuke you. False teachers say, I'll talk about that. They love what is evil. They hate what is good. And so they obviously get the reward for their wrongdoing. They get what is coming to them. So they are ignorant. Third, they are hedonists. Verse 13. Peter references the, how they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. That word pleasure is the same word where we get the word hedonism. The desire to live solely for pleasure. The desire to live solely particularly for sexual pleasure. Sexual pleasure, of course, is a gift of God, only to be enjoyed within the parameters that God himself sets. But the false teachers live solely for that pleasure. They live solely for it rather than for the glory of God. They take a gift of God, they pervert it, and they turn it into a God. They turn a good thing into God. Their motto is, whatever you want is what you got to have. Just act on, on your desires. You want it, you got to have it. And this reference to reveling in the daytime is a reference to open debauchery. Open, excessive, self-absorbed indulgence. If you have a sinful dream, then go make it come true. Just go do what you have to do. These are things that take place even during daylight hours, not just under the cover of darkness. This is an all-day affair for them. Daytime debauchery, though, was frowned upon even in the degenerate Roman society. Not even pagans thought it was a, it was a virtue. These false teachers said, who cares? We just want to do what we want to do. Alexander the Great commented on the indulgence which he saw in his day, saying that men had all been nearly ruined in soul by luxury and idleness and were slaves of money and pleasure. Many people would hear that and think, yes, that is a bad thing. That is something I want to avoid. False teachers say, no, that sounds great. Let's do that. They are happy only if they get what they want right now. Daytime debauchery was particularly evil in the Old Testament. Isaiah 5.11 Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. So they, they go on to revel in their deceptions. As I say, they, they love and enjoy what is false. They love falsehood. It's similar to the situation in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul mentions the, the situation of the man who has his father's wife. He says, not even pagans do this. And this is going on in the church. You need to get rid of that person because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And later in chapter 11, people are showing up to the Lord's table inebriated. This is not what a church ought to do. This looks more like the world. And even the world says, this doesn't look like us. This is too, too much for us. It was going on even in God's house. So these false teachers live out Paul's words in Romans 8.5. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So they are hedonistic. Fourth, they are accursed. Verse 14. This is a particularly heavy one. He says that they have eyes full of adultery, literally full of an adulteress. 
which could mean to say something like, their eyes are always looking for a woman with whom to commit adultery. Or they're always looking to actualize their lust. In the words of Psalm 101, they love to set worthless things before their eyes. And the psalmist says, I don't want to do that. They're insatiable for sin. There's unceasing restlessness for sin. You've got to have more. Nothing ever satisfies. I'm insatiable for it. I always have to feed my flesh. And of course, the law of diminishing returns kicks in. What once satisfied, no longer satisfied. So I have to have more. This gets at Peter's pastoral point, is that they entice unsteady souls. They want to lure you in. They know how to lure you in. They're going to lay out the bait, and they're going to catch you if they can. They go, they go for the unstable. That's who, they, that's who they prey upon. The unstable are, are those who lack a firm foundation. That's why the false teachers go after them. Those who lack a firm foundation are, are more likely to believe what is false. They're more likely to be deceived. This is something that has been picked up on in, the, in some of the scandals in the Roman Catholic Church that priests would prey on those who came from broken homes, who came from poor homes, because they were easy, easier to catch, easier to prey upon. I'm, I'm not equating the false teachers that Peter's talking about with Roman Catholicism. I'm merely saying that those who, those who entice the unstable know what the unstable are like, and that's why they entice them. These false teachers are, are trained in greed. The word for trained there is where we get our word for gymnasium. The gymnasium, of course, is, is a place of training. It's a place of exercise. You set aside time to go to the gym. You focus on the things that are important to you. You train for a marathon. You, you run on the treadmill. You want to do bodybuilding. You, you lift weights. Whatever you want to focus on, that's the machine you go to. You're there to get in shape. Gymnasium is also used to describe schooling. A gymnasium is, is another word for school. A school is another place of training. You listen to lectures, you read, you write papers, you study for exams, you have study groups. You're there to learn and to fill your mind. Well, the false teachers are also committed to this kind of training, except they are trained in greed. If there was a gymnasium of iniquity, they go to the greed machine, whatever that would look like. They're filling their minds with greed in, in the gymnasium of school. That's how they train themselves. They discipline themselves in coveting. They hit the books, they go to the gym to improve their ability to break the 10th commandment. That's how they train themselves. And Peter summarizes all this, all these practices as accursed. Those who do these things are accursed children. That is to say, they are under God's curse right now. And the curse will only get worse should they continue unrepentantly. So they are, they are accursed children. Fifth and finally, they are greedy. Well, we already looked at greed, so why, why are we looking at greed as a, as a separate point? Well, here Peter is, is comparing the greed of the false teachers to the greed of Balaam. You, you recall the account of Balaam, Numbers 22 to 24. These false teachers love gain from wrongdoing. And in that sense, they are, they are greedy. They are like Balaam in that way. Well, Peter references that Balaam is the son of Beor, could also be rendered the son of Basor. This could be a wordplay that Peter is saying Balaam was a son of flesh. 
He was, not a, he was not a son of the Spirit, not a child of God. He was son of flesh, emphasizing his ungodly character. He loved gain from wrongdoing. He loved the reward of unrighteousness. Think of the, the narrative in Numbers, how that plays out. Balaam is, is bribed by the king of Moab to pronounce a curse on Israel. He's driven by being rewarded for that ungodliness. He goes to the highest bidder. So the king of Moab bribes him to curse Israel. And he would have done so, he would have been able to do that if the angel of the Lord did not stop him from doing so. And he was rebuked on the road for his disobedience by his own donkey. Well, Balaam didn't even realize what was going on when the donkey rebuked him until the angel of the Lord opened his eyes to what was going on. The donkey gets off the road and gets on a, in a narrower and narrower road and then just finally lays down. Balaam hits the donkey. The donkey says, why are you doing this? Then he proceeds to have a conversation with him, not realizing I'm talking to a donkey right now. And the angel of the Lord opens his eyes to what's going on. So the point of this comparison is, is to emphasize the sad irony for Balaam. Balaam's sin was irrational, and he was rebuked for it by an irrational animal. You see that? He lived out 1 Timothy 6.10, that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. I'll curse Israel if you pay me for it, or I'll bless Israel if that's, a, if that's an option, if there's money for that. Paul goes on to say there that it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And the antidote to this, of course, is what Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 32 and 33. Essentially, God, God knows what you need before you ask him. Ask him, but he already knows what you need. First of all, first and foremost, seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Not and then go seek what you need. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then trust him to give you what you need when you need it. So in one sense at this point, the false teachers are, are ignorant and are irrational. They're like an animal in that way. They have that decreative mo- motif. They want to be less than the image of God. They want to be like an irrational animal. But in another sense, the animals know better than they do. They could be rebuked by a donkey for their greed, just like Balaam was. They are like an animal in their irrationality, and they are worse than the animals at the same time. So is there any word of of hope from this, any good news to glean from this? Is it just a matter of, here it is, be careful, best of luck? Well, there's not an explicit gospel call here. It's not an explicit word of comfort, because remember, this is where Peter is pastorally warning his readers to stay away from from these people. These are wolves. Be careful. Be on the lookout. And I am an under-shepherd of the Lord Jesus, and I want to fend off the wolves for you. They are good at luring people away, so it is for our good that we we are sternly warned to stay away from them. So that's that's the main issue there. But there there is a word of hope to be seen here. Because a mere presentation of sin, if you merely outline why you shouldn't do the sin you particularly struggle with, because it hurts your relationships, because it does this, that, and the other thing, because it's against God, you shouldn't do it, you shouldn't do it, you shouldn't do it. 
That's not going to make you not do it. That's not helpful. So we need more than a warning not to sin in order to grow in God's grace. And Thomas Chalmers, the Puritan, nails this when he says that an old affection must be driven out by a new affection. Sinful affection must be driven out by holy affection. That only comes from above. Your desire for sin will dwindle in proportion to your desire for righteousness, which only comes from the renewing work of the Holy Spirit as he unites you to the Lord Jesus and conforms you to his image. The note of, of hope that I want to bring out from this passage is to, is to look at the negations that we see. There's quite a few negations in this passage. The false teachers are irrational. They're without reason. They're ignorant. They're without knowledge. And they love unrighteousness. That is to say, the false teachers are unlike Christ. Think of Colossians 2, verse 3. Paul says, It is only in Christ that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. Also in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says that God has united us to Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So all that the false teachers lack, Christ has in abundance. They are irrational. He is wisdom. They are ignorant. He has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. They love unrighteousness. He is righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So it is in him alone that we avoid these things ourselves. It is in him alone that we are kept from following the false teachers of our own day. It is only by union and communion with him that we are kept from the foolishness that has been outlined here. It is only by union and communion with him that we are made wise, as he is wisdom. We are made wise to discern who the false teachers of our day are so that we can know to avoid them. I'll make one particular application to the under-shepherds here. The pastors, the elders, husbands, fathers. Are you caring for those under your charge with this kind of shepherding? Are you able and willing to fight off the wolves? Are you able to call it like it is and protect those under your care as this under-shepherd cares for those under his care? Can the potential officers do this as they come up through the ranks? Let me just be clear to say that the officers we have here and many of the potential officers coming up, I think they are able to do this, and we are very blessed here to have the kinds of shepherds that we do have. But how can we do it better? So all the false teachers lack, Christ has in abundance. He is wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in his person. And all that he has, he has for his people. It is for you in union with him. And he is able to keep us from stumbling and bring to completion what he has begun in us. And he will drive away the wolves because he laid down his life for the sheep. God's people said, 